This is this is gold. I hope you keep this in there. Greetings, dear listeners. This is another exciting edition of the uh, Remnant Podcast. I am back from Hawaii. I am uh, neither tan-tested uh, nor ready to get back into the grind of things, but we're going to do it anyway. The last two podcasts of last year apparently left some uh, bad taste in some people's mouths because people were hoping for more wonkery, and instead we did movie talk and rank punditry. So we are going back into the thick of, of rank wonkery by bringing in a... We've never actually met, or at least we don't think we have. I think that's right. right. But uh, a fellow, a part of the National Review family, yes, uh, to a certain extent, and um, a fellow at the Manhattan Institute, our second Manhattan Institute scholar, I believe, Orrin Cass, the author of... I'll hold it up for everybody to see. The Once in Future Worker, A Vision for the Renewal of Work in America. Welcome, Orrin. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Where do you call home? I live in western Massachusetts, middle of nowhere. On purpose? Yes. It is a delightful place to raise a family, uh-huh. and you can barely get to a city if you try. How, how far away is Boston? Uh, two hours. Okay. All right. That's the same real, Yeah. Real Western Massachusetts. Yeah. Not the people who live in like Worcester and claim they're in Western Massachusetts. Right. Or the people who, it's like the people who live, you know, in Westchester and think they live in upstate New York, you know. None of that here. And so you are a senior fellow? Yes. At Manhattan Institute? And um, you were um, policy director for Romney twice around or once around? Uh, once and only domestic policy director. Okay. So you weren't the one who said that Russia was our number one geo- geopolitical foe. I cannot take credit for that. No. Okay. Um, anyway, so you've you've written a book that stirred up um, some controversy. I am I am decidedly in the mushy middle on it, but we can get to all that in a little bit. Uh, why don't you lay out your basic thesis and then we'll take it from there. Sure. The, the book is about work, ultimately. It's about the importance of work to individuals, to their families, to their communities. Uh, and it's therefore looks at what we've done with economic policy and, and how economic policy, I think, has gone really astray, really since roughly the 1960s, um, by ignoring the value of work, by taking an approach to economics. And, and really, this is left of center and right of center. Uh, that has said that consumption is all that matters, and as long as everyone's consumption is rising, we're all going to be happy. Uh, and in a sense, it, we got what we wanted. Consumption has risen incredibly. GDP has skyrocketed. Safety net has expanded incredibly. In consumption terms, you really can say everyone is better off. And yet, I think when you look at the challenges, economic and otherwise, we have in this country, you'd still have to conclude that it hasn't actually worked out, that we have not gotten what we wanted. And I think what we were missing was we, we weren't thinking about work. So where, where, to, where to dig in on this? Why don't we start with how you view the, the role of labor markets, right? You, that, that workers aren't commodities, they aren't widgets, right? And sort of like, who's the Swiss guy who wrote, we wanted workers and we got, we got people? Boritz. Well, he's he's one who called. He, he, oh, he, yeah, Borjas is the guy who 
wrote a book titled that, We Wanted Workers and We Got People, but it was a quote from some Swiss like playwright or something like that. But anyway, it's sort of part of your point, right, is that um, the, the, the labor market doesn't operate like um, the, the widget market and that other factors are involved. So why don't you talk about how immigration factors into all of this? I'm just trying to flush out. I mean, if you want to go a different direction, that's totally <laughs> fine. I'm, um, you know, I started day drinking particularly early today, so... Um, um, I'm happy for you to grab the reins. Sure. I mean, I'll just keep rambling, and That's then you fine. sort of rambling flail, is good. flail or gesture when you want to. Rambling want, is good. Want me to bring it to a close? You know, I think an important place to start, especially when you're having the conversation within the right of center, is to ask, "What do we mean when we say markets are good? That we like markets, and when? What if any are the limitations on that?" And so I think absolutely markets are incredibly important for a number of reasons, that they're a wonderful way to order society in a sense. Um, but and consumption is good, too, and right? Con- and consumption is good, too. I, I'm certainly not against consumption. I'm not against growth. I think economic growth is incredibly important. But I think what we miss when we just trust markets is that markets deliver something in particular. They deliver efficient allocations of resources with efficiency defined in a very narrow economic sense as well. And in most cases, that's what you want out of a market. You you want the market to tell you whether oil costs $50 or $100 a barrel to produce, and you want consumers to respond by driving more or less or buying a different kind of car and so forth. That logic breaks down somewhat when you get to the labor market, which is the mechanism that governs what kind of work we have, who's doing the work, how much it pays, where it is. The labor market, again, as a market, works very well. If you let it do its thing, it will give you an efficient answer. The problem is that because the thing you're talking about in the labor market is people, the efficient answer isn't necessarily enough. Uh, When you look at what the economics is going to predict, what sort of great free market economics principles will deliver, nothing in that suggests that the efficient equilibrium you're going to land on is going to be one that is going to allow people of all different abilities and aptitudes in all different places uh, to find work that's going to allow them to support strong families and communities. So it's perfectly possible, and I think this is what has happened in the United States, to let markets run their course by and large, get efficiency, get growth, uh, and yet have a piece of that be that the labor market isn't delivering the outcome that we want because we actually have social values beyond economic efficiency. And in any other market, if your market is sort of, if if you've got an excess somewhere, that's fine. If you have to take a big write-off, that's fine, but you can't write people off. Uh, And that's not just rhetorically, that's in a sense literally what we've done in, in our approach to policy. And so... Uh, if we say, for as much as we love markets, we actually have a substantive preference for how we want the labor market to behave, then your answer can't stop from a public policy perspective at just whatever produces the freest market and the most growth. You actually have to attend to how the labor market is performing, what the outcomes are. But then conversely, you also have to turn to the left of center, who might be happy to say, darn straight, we don't like where markets are coming out. Let's Let us tell you where we want the market to come out. Uh, and recognize that just commanding some preferred outcome is not a viable way to handle markets. That when you just say, well, I want the wage to be this instead of that, or you try to regulate or make a law dictating it, uh, you make the market work a lot, of wor- a lot worse, and you typically get an even worse outcome in the long run. And so the, the, the way that I'm really encouraging policymakers to think about markets and the labor market in particular 
is to recognize that it's a market is a neutral processing mechanism. It takes the conditions that it's operating in and spits out a result. If you don't like a result, the result, then you have to go and look at the conditions. And you have to say, what is it about the demand side and the, what's producing demand in the market? What is it about the supply side and what's preparing workers for the market? What is it about the way we've drawn borders around the market? What is it about the way we regulate or tax or subsidize within the market that's leading to particular outcomes? Uh, and if, if we want different outcomes, what changes would we make to conditions? And so critically, that's not necessarily bigger government or smaller government. I think libertarian folks have looked at what I've written and said generally, well, wait a minute, this is some sort of big government answer. Uh, it's not. I think it's actually very difficult to look through the book and find places where I am on net proposing for an increase in the scope of government and government spending. It's grappling with trade-offs differently and saying that the structure we choose for our society, for our economy, has impacts for the labor market. And if we have a substantive preference for certain labor market outcomes, we need to reflect those in the structures. Okay, so give me, give me a couple for instances about what you would do at the national level to uh, compensate for us having gone too far down the sort of consumption and GDP growth is everything path. Sure. So I think a good place to start is with our education system. Um, we have chosen an education system that is geared toward college for all, which has two really important implications in this respect. One is college for all is actually a pretty great way to yield an awful lot of economic growth because we're going to put all of our investment in the people who we think are going to be most productive, and they will, in fact, produce a lot of economic growth. Uh, and conversely, if that actually leaves a tremendous number of people behind uh, in terms of their economic capacity, we don't worry about it too much because we can say we can redistribute from the winners to the losers. If you're actually concerned about labor market health and people's capacity as producers and their ability to be productive contributors, uh, then you have to worry about essentially the bottom half of, of the education system a lot more than you worry about the top half. Say, look, college is great for, for people that are going to succeed in college, but we should be at least concerned about the majority of people who still don't achieve even a community college degree. And the answer isn't push them as far through college until they don't make it any further. The answer is that we should have a pathway for folks who aren't going to college or who aren't likely to succeed in college that's going to be more attractive to them than the college path. That's going to, while they're still in high school, connect them to the workforce, help them start gaining practical skills. Sort of like a German vocational model kind of Close thing. Close to the German vocational model, but but recognize that, you know, I think politicians like to say like, hey, apprenticeships, right? right. Sure. It's, it's a much deeper commitment to that than that, to saying, look, if you are someone for whom college is not likely to make sense, it is actually our obligation to provide you with something that sounds more attractive than going to college would be. Right now, if you at least try college, we've got $100 billion of subsidies waiting for you. If you don't, if you try to go get a job after high school, we've got nothing. Mm -hmm. um, and and that's, that's fundamentally backward. Um, so, so I think we need to, to really shift that emphasis and say, actually... Again, we have a substantive preference for people, whatever their abilities, wherever they are, being prepared to actually be productive contributors themselves. So what would you do about trade? So trade, I think, is a really interesting one to talk about um, in, an, under this construct. Because, again, from a consumption perspective, from the way we've done economics, then the folks I would call the free trade absolutists mm -hmm. are absolutely correct. From a consumption perspective, more free trade is pretty much always better. You have more choices as a consumer. You have more variety, lower prices. You can essentially stop the conversation there. From the perspective of workers, from the perspective of the economy as something that generates output, 
free trade can be an excellent thing, and I, I think it, it on balance usually is, and we should want it to be, but it is not always. And the condition when it's not is if you have imbalanced trade. That from a producer perspective, trade deficits actually do matter. That, that in concrete terms, what you're saying is it's not actually trade anymore. I mean, the word trade suggests we send you something, you send us something. So if, you know, if $50 billion of cars we used to make here, we make in Japan instead, but we make $50 billion more of airplanes and we send the airplanes for the cars, that's great. And that's mm-hmm. great for workers and consumers on both sides. If Japan makes $50 billion of cars for us and we send back $50 billion of U.S. Treasury bills, literally IOUs, just pieces of paper that say we will send you the $50 billion someday with interest, we don't know how, consumers can say that's a great deal. We didn't even have to make anything. We just got the cars. For, for workers, that's not a good deal. You just removed a whole bunch of stuff we used to produce in our economy here. Um, and again, from a labor market balance perspective, you just said, let's provide a whole bunch of supply into the market from Japan uh, with no countervailing demand for things that, that workers are making here. And so in the immediate run, that's not such a good deal. And especially if you think about a long run trajectory, um, the, the more and for the longer you do that, uh, the more you're going to see your own capacity weaken, and you're going to find yourself in a situation where, again, consumers can look very happy, but things have actually not gotten better for workers and for opportunities uh, to produce. So where did we go? Where, I'm going to have my pointed responses in a little bit, but where did we go for... Uh, where, where, where did we take the wrong fork in the road, right? So is it your contention that that America was better off economically in the 1950s, the 1960s? On what basis do you mean that? And what would you have done to keep us on that path if that's the case? So when you ask if if we were better off economically, again, in terms of consumption, certainly we were not. Mm -hmm. People, so if you define economic as how much stuff do I get to consume, certainly everyone is better off today. If, If you think a little bit more broadly about our social structures, um, and the health of a society in which people can actually find work that supports families, that communities, wherever they are, can thrive, then I think there are, there are a lot of things that uh, have gotten worse, at least in, in some places. And again, I think, you know, another, sorry, this is a little bit of a diversion, but I think it's worth pointing out, one of the weaknesses of the consumption view is that it really encourages just an aggregate mm-hmm. view, that if all we're concerned about consumption, if we believe we can redistribute from winners to losers, then the total size of the economic pie really is all that matters in a sense. Um, and so we get into the habit of just speaking in the aggregate. And whether you're talking about the mean or the median, here, here's a data point that looks better than it used to. If you actually are concerned with labor markets, which are local, largely speaking, then you have to look a little bit more granularly and say, look, there are places that are doing great, but we have a lot of places. We have subsets, we have geographic regions, we have segments of the population, especially those less educated, um, for whom things don't look very good right now. And so where we went wrong, I think, and, and this arose, you know, there, one of the things I find fascinating is there are ideas behind these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the idea to shift and focus on consumption really, and, and with it, this kind of using GDP as a measure of economic health, you know, it emerged, first of all, of the Great Depression, which is when we started measuring GDP at all um, to facilitate kind of Keynesian efforts to pull out of the Great Depression. It became especially important during World War II. When you're in a, in a world war, actually, your, right. your, capac- your, 
Your economic aggregate capacity is, is an, an existential concern. But then as we moved beyond that into the 50s and 60s, we, we stuck with it. We just continued to measure GDP in terms of how many convertibles people could buy. It's funny. It, it, I think it's H.W. Brands, the historian. He had a contention that it was JFK was the first president who explicitly said the role of the government was to um, basically hold the had the whip hand over the economy to grow the economy, and it was done in a Cold War context that we were going to sort of right. outprosper the Soviet Union, and we've sort of internalized that as sort of a Cold War mentality ever since. Yeah, and it, I mean the the key term that that captures this and that you, is a bipartisan view is this idea of the economic pie. Um, Eisenhower, excuse me, Truman actually mentioned the uh, the economic pie, but it was really Kennedy. Um, who started talking about it in terms of economic pie. And then since then, most presidents, Republican and Democrat, have talked about we have to grow the pie. Mm-hmm. And, and so along that's happening in the economic lane. Simultaneously in the cultural lane, we have this sort of very strong shift toward individualism and wish and desire fulfillment and, and consumerism in that respect. Uh, and then with that came the shift with the war on poverty, also launched in the 60s, to the idea that if if we had a serious problem with poverty, which we did, um, and which we still do, I would say, the the way to solve that was to send a lot of resources to people in poverty. And so that, again, followed the same logic, that if poverty was a problem of consumption, and it could be solved by boosting people's consumption. And so what, what you find, I think, is really starting in the 60s, you see shifts on all of these different policy dimensions toward this model that says, as long as we're growing the economic pie, everyone's going to be happy. And so you see that in education, 60s into the 70s is when we abandoned, for the most part, vocational education and tracking and went toward this high school as college prep model. It's when, you know, on the environmental front in 1970 with the Clean Air Act, with the EPA, we shifted toward very aggressive efforts to um, control pollution at the expense of the industrial economy. Um, 1965 is when immigration reform went through a really substantial shift toward opening up flows um, of less skilled immigrants in particular. Um, roughly around 1970 is when you see international trade hit a real inflection point. Um, and again, at least initially, when it was balanced, we can celebrate that, but it, it became very much a part of the economic model. Um, and as I said, with, with the safety net, that's when the, the war on poverty sort of launched in this, in this consumerist mindset. And so um, I think you see on all of these dimensions this shift um, that then, by the time you get into the 1980s, even as the, the the Reagan policy reforms were boosting growth incredibly, you already notice actually wages aren't going anywhere. Um, that total GDP, GDP per capita, is showing incredible performance. Stock market returns are showing incredible performance. Wages aren't actually growing, uh, and and you can you know you you can do things in not a good way for a long time before they build to a crisis. Um, but I think by the mid-2000s, you start to see that, that things were really going badly. And one of the things I try to make a point of in the book is that this isn't about the Great Recession, that I try to kind of actually use 2006 as an endpoint for mm-hmm. a lot of these measures. So that by 2006, before the recession even hit, we already had you know everything from the opioid epidemic was actually already out of control, right. even though no one had any idea. People were reporting deep dissatisfaction with the direction of the country. You had the stagnating wages. You had the declining labor force participation. Um, and so I think the way to understand the Great Recession is sort of the crisis that that breaks through and causes everyone to wake up. Uh, and for the political class to extend, 
and at least Trump's election causing people to say, huh, what's going on? Um, but those are symptoms of, of, a, of, a, of a problem that was really building for a, a much longer time. Um, right, so just for the listener's sake, there are, there are arguments about the picture that Oren presents in terms of how bad workers are doing and all that, and Oren has responded to them. And we'll put um, a bunch of that in the show notes, and you can read the back and forth with Scott Winship and whoever and all that. But as one of the cardinal rules of this podcast is that there will be no math, I'm going to ignore all of that and just say that it's, it's debated. You know, I, I, I was very persuaded by Nick Eberstadt's piece and commentary, mm-hmm. which cataloged how bad things have been going since at least 2000, if not earlier, for the working class. I'm sympathetic to a lot of those points that you're making. Did you listen to uh, Tucker Carlson's rant heard around the world? Yes. Where do you come down on that? Well, I, I read the, the commentary from it, which I yeah. trust was a transcription of it. Um, I think he made a lot of really important points and called attention to a lot of these same kinds of problems that I'm talking about. Where I disagree is is his attribution of the problems to essentially some sort of bad faith right. um, on the part of leaders who either don't care or, you know, I don't think that's the case. Certainly my experience working with people in policy and politics, it's not that people don't care. It's that we have these ideas that are just are proving not to have been right in certain cases. And, and so I don't think you need an explanation of bad faith. I don't think it's accurate to have an explanation of bad faith. I don't think it's constructive to have an accusation of bad faith um, at the core of the critique. Once you get beyond motives into just a description of what is happening where we are, I, I think he um, he's very much on point. Okay. Yeah. I, I think that's fair. I One of my great grievances with so much of what counts as populism these days is that it ultimately, you know... Uh, in the political realm, in the cable shout show realm, descends into conspiracy theorizing, right? That that there's a bad thing that happened. The bad thing affects me. I take offense about the bad thing affecting me. Someone must have intended it to be this way. And then you get angry at people. All right, so let me... Actually, can I say one more thing about yeah. that? The, you know, I think it's... The, the finger pointing, I think, is happens on both sides. I think David French wrote something really yeah. interesting at National Review um, that got a lot of very good coverage as well. Um, that again called out some of these excesses on on Tucker's part, but then also sort of said, let's get back to focusing on you know personal responsibility and the fact that you know no one's a victim here. It's it's essentially your own problem if things aren't going well for you, and and I think that takes the finger pointing too far in the other direction. We conservatives should be able to hold in their heads two ideas at the same time: one that personal responsibility is incredibly important. Um, and that we need people to make good decisions and they're responsible for their decisions. And two, that as policymakers, there's also an obligation to be trying to create conditions that engender good decisions and, and make, make it as easy as possible to make good decisions and, and make, um, make, make life viable. And so, you know, I, I don't think we should be pointing fingers all one way and saying, you know, there's some bad faith conspiracy somewhere. I don't think we should be pointing fingers the other way and saying, well, you know, this is just a personal responsibility problem, we can move beyond that to say, regardless of people's personal motives, policymakers have an obligation to create economic and social, well, to the extent that policymakers can create social structures or promote social structures that are going to facilitate a a healthy society and an opportunity to build good lives. And so um, the sooner we get to that discussion, I think the better. Yeah. So 
right, so here's where I come down on a lot of this. Um, Yuval Levin has got a great corner post at NR uh, today. We're recording this on Monday about the populism debates. Mm-hmm. And one of the points he makes is one that I've been exploring for a very long time is there is an inherent fault line that runs straight through modern American conservatism from the beginning. Fusionism was what came to be sort of a shorthand for how to reconcile the two sides of the fault line. It's this, it's this dogmatic difference in orientation between you know liberty and order and freedom and virtue. Conservatives in bygone eras, particularly 19th century and certainly in Europe, if they cared at all about the liberty part, at least in Europe, they don't think they cared at all about the liberty part. But even in America, the liberty part came second to the order part. Right? We need healthy institutions and a healthy society that gives the people a sense of meaning and place in the world. And in the, in the post-World War II period, the emphasis on freedom, uh, which was basically a way of bringing in the entire libertarian tradition, which you know, is much older than the American conservative tradition, into the fold, uh, particularly libertarian economics, which became almost synonymous with conservative economics until f- in the last two years, put too much of the emphasis on the liberty part mm-hmm. and forgot too much of the order part. And you can, whatever stand-ins you want for liberty and order, it could be, you know, freedom and virtue, you can go down the long list. And that this, this it's, 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 it's a yin and yang thing, and both are important. And fusionism, as a political organizing principle, um, kept, for the most part, everybody in the wagon. But as a philosophical principle, it left something to be desired. Because as conservatives, we should all recognize that there are trade-offs in everything, right? And so the sort of soft version of your argument, I'm very sympathetic to, right? Since the government is in the business of setting the rules for how the economy works, the idea of moving the needle a little bit more towards the health of, of the worker rather than the um, you know global financial elites or whatever you want to call it, that seems to me an utterly reasonable proposition as a matter of theory or as a matter of principle. Um, I get a little more nervous when we start talking about the public policy part of it because it seems to me that many of the problems that we have are the product of policymakers thinking they have the right answers and being wrong, as you stipulated before. And you could have the same problem going the other way, where you start valuing producers over consumers. There is, in the practical world, an enormous opening there for crony capitalism, for people doing things in the name of helping workers when really what they're, it's sort of like what Macron is doing in France when he's talking about liberalizing the economy. He's basically saying, no, I'm going to let my friends make more money by privatizing a few things, um, but it's not actually helping the workers. It's not opening up the economy. It's not reducing unemployment. And so what worries me is the, is the cult of expertise. And I understand that's your job, right? you know, is to be an expert on this policy stuff. But I'm much more of a fan of sort of very simple rules for complex societies. And so the, where I, I keep coming back as I go through the book, and also the responses to it, pro and con, is that it's a little bit like, I, I get the feeling that it's at times like looking like the drunk who looks for his car keys where the light is good, right? You're fo- focusing on, on the problem of work, which I think is a perfectly legitimate and important thing to do. But it seems to me that many of the things that are, you know, the opioid crisis, sure, part of it probably has to do with the lack of ability for 
you know, those good middle class jobs going away. I have no doubt that that's part of the explanation. But it seems to me that the cultural aspect of these things is a vastly, it's certainly a vastly more complicated thing to deal with. Mm-hmm. And, um, and ultimately a more important thing. And I think that's one of the things that David French was getting at is that, you know, and I know you know this stuff, the success sequence, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's this idea that comes out of Brookings and AI and elsewhere that if you just simply get as much education as you can, wait till graduate from high school before you get married, wait till you get married before you have kids, the odds of you being in poverty or your kids being in poverty are vanishingly small, right? My old boss, Ben Wattenberg, wrote a book called Values Matter Most, which was sort of getting the values right, um, both in public policy and for individuals. And it seems to me that that a lot of the things that you're talking about are downstream of those cultural changes and very hard to, to sort of to fix by tweaking environmental regulations and whatnot. Um, for, ex- for example, I mean, like, let me ask, how, how much of the problem for, for non-college educated uh, working class men stems from the fact that women can make more money than they can in, in the labor force. And that has all sorts of ramifications for sort of status and for family formation and all of the rest. How are you going to fix that, right? And do you want to fix that? And so talk a little bit about how, you know, you know the cultural dynamic feeds into this and where you see it in the hierarchy of problems. Sure. I, I think it's a great question slash point. I guess I would say two things about it and then toss a question back. Sure. The first is I don't at all disagree that culture is incredibly important. I also agree that it's harder for policymakers to access or influence directly. But none of that is an argument against then talking about the things that we can talk about. No, that's fair. That's totally and, fair. And so, you know, I, nowhere in the book do I suggest that if, if only had we done all of these other things, everything would be perfect. Right. Uh, my view is that if we had done these other things, things would be better mm. than they are, uh, and that to the extent these are the places that people can focus, uh, that policymakers have real ability to influence, please let's talk more about these. Um, the second thing I'd say then with, with respect to your point about sort of the expertise uh, and should we be skeptical that government can really do anything about this comes back to one of the initial points I made, which is that I, I don't want to talk about how we order the market to a better equilibrium. I want to talk about the conditions that we're choosing for it to operate in. Um, and that I think for the most part, I've, everything that I've talked about in the book are things where we have to choose one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, on environmental regulation, actually, I'm quite deregulatory. Right. Um, on education, you could take the sort of hardcore libertarian view, well, if only we didn't have education, you know, public education, then everything would be great. If you come into the realm of, no, actually, there's some social reasons we want to have public education, we're going to have to choose how to orient it, who to focus it on. And so I would suggest that my choice is a better one than the one we are making now. Mm-hmm. You know, when it comes to immigration, my suggestion is, A, that we actually enforce immigration law. Right. Uh, and B, that then when we decide... Now, you could say, again, we should just have open borders, but if not, then we're going to have to decide where to prioritize, and so I would suggest the prioritization on high-skill immigration. When it comes to trade, you know, I explicitly say, I don't think tariffs are a good idea at all. I don't think you're going to pick the right ones. I think it's going to open up to all the kinds of problems of capture you describe. Um, but if you are going to have international trade and a free international trading system, you have a very interesting problem, which is you are welcoming other countries with very different policies into your economy. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and you can, you can defend free markets to the death and you can defend free trade to the death, but you can't actually defend both. Because if you are going to have a completely free trade system with a Chinese mercantilist, uh, centrally controlled economy, uh, you're now allowing a lot of your production to occur in that context. And so, again, we have to choose. You, you could say, well, just letting the Chinese do whatever they want is the free market solution. I don't think that's right. I think we have to choose what norms to enforce and how to do it. And we should do it a lot more aggressively. Um, I will skip over organized labor, although I think we should open it up and allow more choice and less um, dictates there. For um, private sector Yes. For private sector, yes, yeah. that's right. I mean, you'll, you I, get I, a lot of trouble with the Manhattan I have, Institute. I have, I, have, I have no brief for public sector, very explicitly <laughs> private sector. Uh, and then finally, the safety net. You know, we can talk about spending less on the safety net, but if we are for a given size of safety net, I think we should take a significant chunk of it and use it to incentivize work and put money in workers' paychecks instead of sending it to people for not working. Um, and, and I think the best litmus test for all of these is if we imagine a world in which everything that I described were the status quo, in how many cases would a proposal to shift to what we have today be the small mark, small government conservative solution? Hmm. I don't think there are any. And I, I, I'm sure a critic could point to one. So I'm not going to make that blanket statement. But I think that construct helps to think about when are we making a choice we have to make, in which case let's do the best we can, versus where are we just throwing government into the mix, which is something I try to avoid and I don't mm -hmm. think we'll solve. Um, and so then I promised a question back to you, which because I think the culture question is so interesting to me, um, because on the one hand, I'm entirely sympathetic to the view that culture and you know social conditions and private decision-making matters most. Um, and we should acknowledge that even to the extent we can't control it. The one reason that I think this work thing is, is more important than conservatives give it credit for is that to a very large extent, different segments of society swim in their own labor markets, mm -hmm. whether that's regionally, whether that's based on skill and education level. But to a very large extent, we swim in the same culture. Uh, and that all those same cultural changes that we would attribute to impacting less skilled, lower income households, we've seen at least in spades throughout the rest of society in terms of the shows and the values and everything else that get preached on a college campus. And yet it turns out for those segments of society where the labor market is still healthy, culture hasn't been much of an impediment to building exactly the sorts of strong families, communities, stable lives we want. It's only in those ponds, those sections of the big cultural pond that right. have really serious economic challenges that we're seeing all of these social problems. And so that strikes me as fairly good evidence that certainly we should be talking about work and that we should be acknowledging as a bigger problem than conservatives have. I would be, I, I, I don't know what your response would be. I'm curious sort of how- Yeah, no, think I think that. that's a really interesting point. You know, there are lots of things at the wonk level where you outrank me by several orders of magnitude that I think are ripe for fixing. You know, but my friend Ron Bailey had a great piece in Reason a few years ago where he went back to the really beaten up uh, rural west, uh, rural Western Virginia. He gets very mad when I call it West Virginia. Uh, Western Virginia town where he grew up. And he grew up in, in pretty serious poverty. And, and he did some really great reporting about, you know, one of the problems is, you know, first of all, you have the deindustrialization part, which you're focusing on, but also the way the sort of welfare, the, the, the micro welfare states in these places work is that the, the price of moving someplace where there is actual work 
um, is so great because the the benefits are all tied to the local system, mm-hmm. and so it is basically a it's not a safety net. It's it's a misery web in effect, right? It keeps people stuck because they can't take the risk of losing all of the benefits that they have to go someplace else and start over in the hope of finding a job. I mean, my guess is if you truly have a roaring, like if, if these last job, job numbers extend into the future, some of those problems will be solved because the, the calculations at the margins will change and people will find it okay to move. So I mean, I, I think there's an enormous amount of uh, merit to arguments about since we're already in the game, Chain, you know, moving the knobs one way or the other in a more beneficial direction. Maybe it's because I'm a broken record on this, but you know, what is it called? Productive pluralism, or whatever. Um, I'm very sympathetic to a, you know a related idea of pushing as much power as possible down the most local level possible, mm-hmm. right? And so it drives some of my libertarian friends crazy when I say, "Look, I, I, I if some town in Vermont wants to ban Walmart, I may think that's a bad decision." I may not. I don't know. I mean, it kind of depends. But I would perfectly be happy, you know, if stipulate that you can get around constitutional issues and all the rest to let local jurisdictions make those decisions for themselves. And I think that one way you fix the culture on this stuff is to have fewer people looking to Washington or to the national culture generally for all the solutions to their lives. Mm-hmm. And, and that would be, that's why I'm very, actually very sympathetic to the idea of, of reinvigorating um, labor unions, private sector labor unions. Yes. I think you can make a, actually a pretty good libertarian argument that people have a property right to their labor and therefore they can draw, draw associations and, and negotiate all of that. And businesses have every right not to deal with them if they don't want to, right? Public sector unions, I think, are a crime against humanity and they're really terrible things. And so, for me, the, 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 I, you know, it's not that so much that I think emphasizing the role of work is a bad idea. It just makes me exceedingly nervous of this idea of dictating it from Washington. Mm-hmm. And on the broader cultural trends that you're talking about, I think that one of the things that, I mean, there's a chicken or the egg issue, but if you sent as much political power down to the most local level possible, that would in turn generate more cultural and economic power to local elites. And the benefit of that, among other things, is, is that then the powers that be are no longer these you know, malevolent globalists and malefactors of great wealth that Tucker or Bernie Sanders might be talking about. It's guys named Phil and Ted and Sarah and you know, people that they know and can appeal to directly and hold accountable for things. And I think you would have a, a pretty virtuous cycle that would come out of that that would mean that in some places it's very expensive uh, to open a factory <laughs> and in other places it would be very cheap to open a factory and let a thousand flowers bloom. And so in that sense, the metric of looking at everything through the, 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 the macro national GDP pie, I agree with you, is kind of nuts. We should be looking at this. I'm, I'm for rich ecosystems mm-hmm. that have lots of Burkean platoons, that have the one thing that... Every society, no matter how scalable, large or small, has to have is the right to exit. You can't have Jim Crow. You can't have, you know, people being barred from being able to move from one place to another. If the system and the culture in some place doesn't work for people, they have every right to either democratically lobby to change it or to leave. And as long as you have that, I'm, I'm very much in favor of letting a thousand flowers bloom. And I think a lot of the 
economic stuff would sort itself out. But more importantly, what I think we as a culture, what people really have is a crisis of meaning. And that is, and you're addressing one facet of it, which is a lot of people attribute their meaning to the, what they do for a living. But, you know, I'm very sympathetic to David French's view that, you know, if more people, if organized religion had a better hold on people, if local communities had more intact families and more intact local institutions, it really wouldn't, the economic stuff wouldn't matter as much to people. But we tell people in this country that too much, we tell them, that their identity is bound up in, in what they do and how much money they make. And that's that's a problem that you you know you can find Jesus talking quite a bit about. Um, does that make sense? Absolutely. And and to your point about uh, crisis of meaning, I think is is very well put. And as you said, meaning comes in a lot of ways. Organized religion is a great example of of something that's obviously declined, independent of economic conditions, and policymakers aren't going to fix. Um, the other ones, I would argue, are are tied to work. And again, not that work is going to solve everything and make it perfect, um, but it's ultimately not work for its own sake and as a source of meaning, but work as a um, enabler and, and supporter of families and communities that I think is important. And so the, the book is built around what I call the working hypothesis, which by now I should really be able to recite from heart, and yet I still won't, uh-huh. um, but is essentially that, you know, a labor market that allows people to support strong families and communities is the central determinant of long-term prosperity and should be the central focus of public policy. So it's not work qua work. It's not if only everyone you know was was working, they'd be happy. We care about work because it supports families and communities. Right. And you can see that from the sort of social science research. I mean, I go sort of chapter and verse through. The ways, you know, yes, work is important to individuals and their self-esteem and their mental health and all of these things, um, obviously their economic opportunity. Work is also, criti- and especially for men, and this, this is a point you were raising when you talk about, you know, men's earnings relative mm-hmm. to women's, we have a long discussion about why this is the case, but especially for men, work is critical to family formation mm-hmm. and work is critical to family stability. I mean, Male unemployment as a predictor of divorce is one of these things that sort of gives you effects order of magnitude bigger than you typically see in the social sciences. Work is critical to raising kids. I mean, kids do better not just in families where there's a parent working, but in communities where adults are working. And then work is is really important to community. I think, you know, again, especially in in less urban environments, I mean, work is a nexus of community. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the reasons work is important for individuals is because it forces you to get up and go and do something for other people every day. And then just in economic terms, you know, one of the concepts I think is really critical to grapple with and, and to recognize, for instance, why we obsess about manufacturing so much is that each local community has to have something that it's making that somebody else in the world wants. I mean, it's fine to talk about becoming a services economy and that's, we can celebrate that, but you can't all serve each other coffee. You got to be making something you're trading to the rest of the world for the medicine and electronics and fuel and, and everything else you need. Now that could be call center jobs, it could be service jobs, um, but doing things that the rest of the world wants is actually critical to community viability. And if you don't have that, you end up doing what I call exporting need, which means literally that the export for your community is your eligibility for government transfer programs. Mm-hmm. And you see this driving around depressed areas. You see the abandoned plaza with the sparkling occupational therapy office. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're literally, they are the exporter. They are exporting to the rest of the country care of the people on disability in the town. 
And so again, work is not a cure-all. I, 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 I would never argue it is. But certainly if you want to look at the levers we actually have at our disposal um, for not just boosting individuals economically, but for encouraging the formation and stability of families, for revitalizing community, um, having a having a substantive preference for how the labor market behaves, I think is actually really important. All right, so talk me through this, right? So you, you're talking about how the, the factory in, in Smallville needs to produce something that's somewhat, that there's a market for either in the country or in the world, right? So they make widgets. And the owners of the widget factory want to move the factory to India. And you don't want that to happen. You have, you're the policymaker who gets to decide how to deal with this. How do you keep the widget factory in Smallville while at the same time keeping the price of the widgets competitive on a global market? Well, first of all, I never said I don't want the factory to move to India. Okay. Um, I don't want the factory to move to India and India to not buy anything else from us. Okay. So if you have balanced trade, then certainly just as occurs between U.S. states and has over time, things that are being made in one place will move to be made in other places. If trade is balanced, we are going to have to make something else here that they want in return. Now, that might not be made in Smallville, so you're going to get some disruption and dislocation in that respect. Um, how are you going to balance the trade? I mean, hmm? How do you balance the trade? Well, so the first thing to recognize is that by default, hypothetically, trade has to be balanced. Mm-hmm. Trade only becomes imbalanced if you have a countervailing imbalance in the capital account, mm-hmm. meaning that we are sending assets in return. Sure. Right. So you have a bunch of levers you can pull here if you want trade to be more balanced. And it's actually kind of a microcosm of this bigger picture labor market discussion we were just having, where the solution isn't to say... Well, I, I order this to be the case, right? And, and tariffs, in a sense, is is trying to do that. It's to look at it's to look at the conditions that the international economy is operating under. Why why is there an imbalance? Why is it that India is a more attractive place to manufacture than in the U.S.? Why is it that what, what India wants in return for these goods is not goods that we make but assets? And what would we change about those conditions? So one thing we can change about the conditions is to make it more attractive to manufacture things here, right? You can't have the trade discussion independent of the environment and labor and regulation mm-hmm. discussions. Another thing that, that might be making it more attractive to, to manufacture elsewhere is um, capacity and expertise and, and specialization, uh, which can be natural and fine or can be engineered, you know, I think one of the things that's most obnoxious in my mind with, in, in talking with free trade absolutists is that first they will argue there, we shouldn't care if, you know, all the electronics manufacturing moves to Asia because it's just it's a free market, doesn't matter, it's efficient. Then once it's over there and you say, well, why can't we do it here? The answer is, oh, because all the supply chains and expertise are entrenched in Asia, right? Right. Well, so actually it turns out that it, <laughs> it did matter where it was in the first place. So, you can have a substantive preference for investing in that kind of expertise in research and development in the, you know, if you look at what we fund in terms of National Institutes of Health versus manufacturing and supply chain and electronics and engineering, we actually pretty much only fund one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can actually invest in, in, domestic, in domestic capabilities. Again, not at the, we're going to pick this firm, but at the, these are the kinds of capabilities we think are important to the economy. And then you can look at at this imbalance essentially in savings. Uh, and you can say, you know what, actually we have a substantive preference for people buying our goods 
uh, over our assets, which makes perfect sense if you're interested in the long-term health um, of the economy. And so you can do that in some cases by just barring the acquisition of assets. I mean, you can just say, we're not letting foreign countries, especially ones with certain trade practices, buy large amounts of our real estate, our corporate debt, our equities, and so forth. Um, you can put a transaction tax on it. And then the last thing is you would then look at, you know, I kind of mentioned how do you increase our capabilities. You can also look at, well, what are these other countries doing that makes them such attractive places? If they just, if they just are, that's fine. If it's- A lot of them is because they just have an enormous supply of poor people. It can be. The problem with the enormous supply of poor people explanation is that in theory, if you're paying everybody the marginal product of their labor, then you don't, it doesn't help. In other words, if you were actually paying, if, if Chinese, Explain so let's say you're paying people in America $20 an hour because that's how productive they are. And in China, you pay people a dollar an hour because that's how productive they are. Well, then technically, if, if the American workers are 20 times as productive, you're happy to pay them 20 times as much. The, the Chinese workers are only more attractive to you if they are relatively more productive than the wage difference. If you don't have to pay them as much relative to their productivity as you have to pay U.S. workers. So, but there are plenty of industries, it seems to me, where uh, textiles or something like that, right? Where the, the, the marginal productive power of, of someone who, who can do the same job for a dollar an hour instead of $20 an hour is there, right? I mean, or call centers where as long as they have good English, um, you can do it from someplace else and, um, and save a lot on labor costs. I mean, when I talk to business people and they talk about labor costs, I mean, they, they seem to think that labor costs oh, are a real issue. I'm not, I'm not disagreeing. They are. I'm just saying the idea that, well, there are lots of, that, that it is inherently the case that developing countries are going to be the more attractive place. I mean, you said, well, gosh, part of the problem is that, like, Chinese workers have no protections and can't organize, mm-hmm. for instance. There are an incredible number of policies that the Chinese government has pursued, some on the labor side, also subsidizing um, other costs, also outright theft of intellectual property, right. and so on and so forth, that, again, make just as we have not done a lot of things to make it an attractive place to manufacture, they've tried to do incredibly attractive things. And so you can you can actually take those on. And to my point about you can't really have free trade and a free market if you're going to have countries behaving the way China does, we can say that's actually actually that's that's not okay. That a real commitment to free markets doesn't mean China does whatever it wants. It means no. Actually, if you want to effectively be in our labor market, you actually need to to be playing by the same rules. And again, from a consumer perspective, it's like, well, why shoot yourself in the foot when they're willing to send you cheap stuff for free? Uh, from a worker perspective, there are actually some real problems with them sending you cheap stuff for free. And cheap stuff for free doesn't quite make sense, but you get the point. I get the point, yeah. Actually, you could send cheap stuff for free. It would just be shoddy. And so, th- so these sort are all these... Sort of what dumping is to a certain extent, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so these are all the kind of different kinds of mechanisms you could say, if we actually care about balanced trade, uh, which we should if we're taking the, the worker-based view, um, then there are lots of things you can do. And it's not tariffs. Um, it's investing in our capabilities. It's confronting unfair trade practices elsewhere. It's addressing the asset versus goods imbalance. Um, and, and, and those should be things that, um, that again, people who like free markets and, and, and want a robust international trading system, I would hope would be in favor of. So back when, um, I thought Paul Krugman made sense, which is not a sentence I say often. He wrote that fantastic essay about competitiveness. It was like late 1990s. 
And he argued, I thought, quite persuasively, that nations don't actually compete against each other, and that it is a it is a faulty way of looking at international trade. Right? Seems to me you don't necessarily agree with that, right? You think that countries do compete with each other. Well, certainly other countries are behaving like they compete with us. Right. I guess the the question would be how should the U.S. respond to that, and whether we should ourselves care about. Um, what is going on economically within the country? I mean, you could just take a firm-based view, right? You see, you've, you know, a good example of this is a week or two ago when Apple said, "Oh, because of all these, you know, trade conflicts, whether or not that's actually the reason is an interesting question." But uh, you know, profit you know, sales in China are way down, mm-hmm. and well, Apple's a corporation; it's a multinational corporation. There are some very beneficial things to the U.S. Certainly about it being headquartered here. Um, certainly. It generates enormous returns for the the shareholders who are based here. But its interests aren't synonymous with with the nation's interests. Mm -hmm. And so if if you're making policy for the nation, uh, I think you have to ask what are the set of policies that are going to achieve what we're we're going for as a nation. And and trade certainly plays a a role in that. So let's come back to the the crony capitalism problem, right? I mean, because when, you know... I can't remember if I said this before, but, you know, I have a lot of faith in people being able, that policy experts being able to diagnose problems. I have much less faith in policy experts being able to design solutions. And we're recording this at the American Enterprise Institute. We're both think tank guys. This is... This is the life we have chosen, right? You know, and it's what, but that's one of the reasons why I'm for the simple rules for a complex society kind of thing. And how do you prevent the the rent seeking, the regulatory capture, um, just from a different set of players, right? Because one of my one of my critiques of Donald, of the Trump administration is, you know, they talk about draining the swamp, but if you look at the number of agencies that are now and cabinet positions that are being run by ex lobbyists or representatives of industries. Or if you look at the way he talks about trade or energy policy, right? I mean, I prefer his energy policy to a certain extent, certainly more than Barack Obama's. But it's still picking winners and losers, right? It's still saying, you know, Obama wanted to reward uh, solar panel manufacturers or whatever, and Trump wants to reward coal miners. It's still sort of thinking that you're smarter than the market, thinking that you're smarter than you know the consumer to a certain extent. How do you prevent... Once this leaves the Manhattan Institute drawing board, just simply becoming an excuse for K Street to to descend upon it and use it as a cheery, benign uh, set of PR talking points for just helping their bottom lines. Well, the first question I think you have to ask is if it's going to make any of those things worse. I mean, we are certainly in a world today of massive rent-seeking and crony capitalism sure. and the other things you're lamenting. I guess one view could be, well, but inherently every time you propose a reform or a change, it's a new opportunity to feed at the trough. Mm-hmm. And therefore, we should oppose anything new per se because just refusing to do anything prevents more rent-seeking. I don't think that's right, and I don't think that's what you're saying, Necessarily, no. I, 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 I'm saying let's stipulate that your set of policy proposals are better than the current status quo, right? And but I've watched, you know, too many times, uh, you know, the 
from starting from the progressive era where there's this notion of disinterestedness or that you know you're going to have engineers or public health experts who are simply trying to have you know the sort of Vox Tom Friedman view of just optimal policies that's all they care about they're just going to let the data drive them and the reality in the real world is is that political actors are much more adept at you know it's sort of the Mansur Olson problem of you know mm-hmm. uh, dispersed uh, concentrated interests yeah. concentrated interests sure. dispersed benefits right and so let's say that you're put in charge of a work oriented you're, you're the work czar right how do you keep all the guys from from K Street and elsewhere from going to Congress going to the regulators and saying Look, this is actually very pro-work. I mean, we saw this with Obama when his energy policy stuff was so swamped with the cylinder types who you can make a perfectly rational case about transferring to renewable economy and all this kind of stuff. But when you actually start talking about the legislation coming through, it, it, it is a very old story about you know, certain industries demanding their slice you know, and the stakeholders around the table take care of themselves. Yeah. I'm a, not a fan of corporatism, right? right. And so... And so one of the reasons why I, I'm always skeptical, this is not a critique of you, right? It's a critique of the system. One of the reasons why I'm always skeptical of great new big ideas that are going to be implemented at the national level is that once they leave the drawing room, they tend to get hijacked by political interests that bend those policies not towards the stated goals of, of the well-meaning policy experts, but towards their own bottom lines, right? right? And so what, what's the insulation you're going to put around? What would you put around the wiring to help fend off that kind of stuff? Right. Well, so, so I would say a few things about that. One is, again, the status quo was built in the exact same way. Mm-hmm. And so if, if moving toward these kinds of reforms, if you say you have your 100% ideal reform, and after all of that, you're going to get whatever percent of it you think you get, you're not comparing it to 100% ideal of something else today. You're comparing to the same watering down of today. Mm-hmm. So whatever programs we have, whatever trade-offs we make, choices we make, um, are going to get watered down in all of the ways you just described. I don't think that's an... I, I don't see how that is an argument against trying to make the best choices we can. No, I'm not presenting it as one. No, and, and yeah. so, so that's the first thing I say, is that... Now, second, I think then you ask, okay, but how can we design these things to minimize mm-hmm. exactly what you're describing? Um, and as a, as a brief aside, I'll say I find it hilarious that, and, and this is not actually against mm-hmm. you, but that conservatives broadly will raise this point and then say that's why we want to focus on tax reform. Yeah, yeah, no, right? I, agree. I agree. Because like, if you want to talk about an approach to policy reform that's going to you know, truly... <laughs> Benefit truly your donors. Benefit yeah. your, well, <laughs> and not even just donors, but truly just, just be the exact approach to policy that is most subject to exactly both the, the pressure for capture and opportunity for capture, it's tax reform. Sure, sure. So uh, right off the bat, I'm not especially sympathetic to conservatives who say, ooh, this sounds dangerous or scary. In terms of how you insulate against that, though, which I think is, is, should, be a, should be a first order concern for these discussions because it's critical to actually making any progress, I think there are a few ways you do it. One is, I think you try to make the changes ones that that do devolve authority and leave things open, um, either to just private sector experimentation or at least to experimentation at, at the local level. 
Now, in the short run, that can actually make things worse because mm-hmm. you know where else they're <laughs> shortly after tax tax reform, local government is a great place to find that kind of capture. But I think opening the space up for that um, is one of the only ways you're actually going to find and build better models and provide the opportunity to people who want to take advantage of it, which which should be one of our goals. And so a lot of things I talk about in the book, you know, when I talk about something like what you do about organized labor, it's saying, you know, most of the proposals literally let's cross one line out of the National Labor Relations Act so that instead of only our existing form of unions being allowed to do anything, let's just open the space up to any kind of arrangement between private sector, labor organizations, and firms mm-hmm. to try to collaborate. So it's a very narrow, very concrete reform in the direction of reducing the amount of capture. So I think that's sort of a, a good approach generally. Likewise, on the environmental front, it's again kind of just saying, look, we just have to swing the pendulum back. Let's mm-hmm. just narrow the scope for these kinds of fights. Sure. To happen. Education, I think, is one where there will be tremendous opportunity for the problems you raise, but I think it would be impossible to be worse than it is today with the way the higher education system works. Yeah. Um, so I, I think the percentage haircut you have to take on that one is relatively large, but also the the gains versus the haircut we're taking today are also very large. And so, so take education. Why not just get why not do the, the hardcore libertarian thing and get rid of the Department of Education, get the government out of the business of subsidizing all of this kind of stuff, and let a thousand flowers bloom? You would see an enormous flower, uh, you know, uh, explosion in, in creative philanthropy about from everything from scholarships to vocational schools and all of the rest. But you wouldn't have these barriers to entry that the sort of Schumpeterian new class types create by having access to both regulations and and cash to manipulate things, right? So uh, directionally speaking, I agree with what you just said. I mean, when we get to actually what agencies should be created or destroyed, we have to talk a lot more about the functions each agency actually carries out. In principle, saying let's get the federal government out of education, particularly higher education, I think sounds quite smart. Mm -hmm. One of the things I say is we should not be subsidizing higher education. Let's just not do that. Mm -hmm. Whether or not it should play a role, though, in the more kind of vocational alternative track, I think is a a slightly more interesting and difficult question Mm -hmm. um, for the reason that, and, and this goes back to this kind of core question of what's the value of work, that there's really substantial social value to building pathways to the workforce for this less skilled population that I'm talking about. And I mean, we have a whole other podcast on why I don't want to talk about this in terms of externalities, but for people who love externalities, there's a very large positive externality here associated with helping build pathways for especially kids from lower income households to and coming from communities where there aren't a lot of full-time workers to figure out how to do it and connect it to employment, especially when it's there isn't a whole lot of return for the employer in the initial years. Mm-hmm. Now, whether the federal government is the right entity to be doing that is then the next question. My view would be that the federal government is a fairly appropriate entity for raising the money for such a thing, um, but not for dictating how it's run. Mm-hmm. And so all of that leads me then to essentially what, what I propose, which is to say, let's stop this subsidizing of higher education, take all the money we're spending on that, and make it available to states and local governments and nonprofits and organized labor, I think, has a role to play in figuring out how to build 
other pathways. And I will some really lousy captured things come out of that? Yeah, sure. But I actually think some really good things would too. And and that on balance, that's a lot better than where we are now. Yeah. Okay, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. So let's just move it briefly to politics before we have to conclude this thing. How optimistic are you that the current populist tide will incorporate the policy program that you, you know, lay out? I mean, in a, in a sense, I mean, I'll just lay my cards on the table. I've talked about this before on the podcast. You know, I was not a reformicon, but I was very sympathetic to the reformicons. You know, people like Yuval and Ramesh and, you know, people we both know, they were making the argument for a very long time that we need to sort of move off of just constantly rerunning the tax reform Reagan 1982 playbook, right? And they were they were often vilified by the sort of high priests of Reaganite orthodoxy as squishes and rhinos and all the rest, right? And then along comes Donald Trump. And many of those same people who shut down any sort of creative policy entrepreneurialism were the first people to say, you, you have to support him. He's winning over the white working class and we need them. And, you know, he wants to help those people. And my position has been, and I've said this a bunch of times on this podcast, maybe if we had listened to people like the contributors to national affairs and Ramesh and other people and made these reasonable reforms in the 2000s or in the you know 2010s, you would not have created, we would not have had the, these problems fester for so long where all of a sudden there's this demand for essentially a demagogic figure to come along. And so in a sense, you know, this book is about two years too late <laughs> in one sense. But one of my, just to bring it back to Tucker for a second, you know, and Tucker's an old friend of mine. I've known him for over 20 years. Uh, he keeps wanting to steal my Springer Spaniel. But we have, I have some profound disagreements with Tucker these days, and I'm sure he has some with me. My problem with the sort of the, 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 let's not focus it entirely on Tucker, but that whole gestalt, sort of the Fox News where I'm a contributor of these people who are saying he's helping the forgotten man, he's about protecting the forgotten man. It seems to me that whenever the interests of the quote unquote forgotten man and the political interests of Donald Trump diverge, they always argue for the political interests of Donald Trump. And the tax reform fight is a perfect example of mm-hmm. that, right? And, this is one of the problems that we that it seems to me for someone who's trying to provide a, a slate of ideas that appeals to this populist moment is that and I hate to sound like Thomas Frank, but the the people who are most in need of the kind of reforms as you see them do not necessarily define their interests in the way that you would want them to. Instead, they define their interests in terms of grievance, in terms of um, sort of. Uh, a sort of conspiratorial mindset about the evil globalists and about making sure that Donald Trump is treated as the sort of uh, man of, you know, great prestige that they think he is rather than actually, you know, meaningful reforms that would actually help them. How do you, how do you think the policy argument is going to progress given where politics are right now, particularly on the right? It's a complicated question. It is a complicated question. All right. Well, let me offer a few thoughts that hopefully roughly answer it. Okay. The first thought is that I think it's important to talk about Trump as a symptom Mm -hmm. and not the kind of catalyst himself. I think his victory is wildly overdetermined. I mean, on all sorts of dimensions in the primary, who he was running his general election, you know, 
obviously won very narrowly. It's not like our nation was at a moment in 2016 where Donald Trump was the inevitable next president. Right, right. I think that the campaign he ran and the fact that he won uh, was constructive in calling attention to these problems that had been long festering. Um, I think if you if you think of him not as somebody offering solutions, but as someone talking about problems, which is often what politics is, he was talking about a different set of problems in a different way than either party really had been. He wasn't talking about the economic pie and growth and redistribution. He was talking about jobs and work and obviously a lot of other things also. But if you're talking about kind of the motivating orientation, it was more from that side. And so that that resonated with people, I think, is telling and important. You know, yeah, in a sense, the book is is two years too late. It's not a set of policy proposals written to address the populist moment. Mm -hmm. It's actually, and (laughs) still buy the book. It's called The Once and Future Worker and available (laughs) on Amazon. Um, But the middle section with all the policy proposals is actually mostly adapted from essays I wrote at Mm -hmm. places primarily for National Review in the years before Mm -hmm. Trump ran. I mean, I wrote the cover story for National Review in 2014 about uh, how we should have a trade war with China. Uh, I wrote a big piece on how conservatives need to be more serious about poverty and with those proposals in 2013, um, wrote a cover story on sort of how conservatives need to grapple with, you know, maybe the whole opportunity narrative wasn't going so well in 2015 mm-hmm. with sort of really a lot of this agenda. And so what what motivated me to write the book and, and turn this into a book and provide the sort of underpinnings wasn't Trump's election. It was actually the response to Trump's election. It was that even when Trump Seeing that Trump had won, the primary response from the punditry in my reading was, oh man, we have a marketing problem. How, like, why don't these people understand how good they have it? Or how else can we describe these policies or buff up the safety net so they'll stop complaining? Um, and that was what made me say, no, wait a minute. This is, this is not the way to understand what's happening. There's a much deeper, more fundamental um, problem here that we need to grapple with. And then I'd also like to, and then these policies are essentially the case studies and what it would mean to do that. And, and so that's a very long preamble to a more mm-hmm. direct answer, which is the way that I think about our politics right now, the, the metaphor I like to use is of a tectonic shift. That, you know, when tectonic plates shift, there's actually pressure building up for an incredible amount of time um, until something snaps. And when something snaps, you get an earthquake. And everyone, nothing focuses the mind like an earthquake, right? But the earthquake is temporary. Uh, what remains after the earthquake is gone is a new landscape. That is the product, ultimately, of those pressures that we're building for a very long time. And things that weren't in contact suddenly are. And I think that that is what we are going to see and are starting to see with American politics, is that a lot of ideas... You know, I've been describing a lot of these things. I think conservatives should think this way, and it, it aligns very well with conservatism. There are plenty of people who are traditionally left of center who should, you know, want to talk about things in these terms as well. It, it's a very different divide, and ultimately I think it's a divide between a mentality that says, look, we have a model of economic and social progress that's producing huge dividends and we need to push ahead with, and it leaves a lot of people behind, and we're just going to have to you know, hope they catch up, redistribute to them, reform education to turn them into the people who are getting ahead. Uh, But our top priority is to keep pushing ahead. Uh, And we're going to have a side that says, no, actually, the the, the top priority here has to be building a foundation that is actually that builds an economy and a society that is inclusive of everyone on the production side as contributors. And you earn the right to build ahead. Because ultimately, I think everyone likes a lot of these things associated with progress. But that's not job one. 
Um, you're in the right to do that by focusing on these other things first. And I think that is already shuffling a lot of coalitions. You know, you were describing this tension within conservatism mm -hmm. between essentially the liberty side that says full steam ahead and the order side that says, no, wait a minute. And when markets were best for every, you know, answered both questions, everyone agreed. And now all of a sudden people on the right are realizing if, if, if the question is different, suddenly you disagree with people you, you took for granted, you agreed with everything on. Welcome to my world. <laughs> and so, look, it, it is a, it's a disturbing time in some respects. It's a very exciting time in other respects. And on my pessimistic days, I would say we're just going down this rabbit hole of deeper polarization and, and, and screaming. And no one on either side is saying anything constructive right now. Um, and my more optimistic days, I would say that's not true. And certainly, you know, the Senate is a very interesting place right now if you talk to folks in the Senate. Um, I think especially on the Republican side, um, but there are some on the Democrat side also that that are that are genuinely reform minded mm -hmm. and and are are recognizing that that this earthquake has occurred, that there are reasons that it did, that we are going to be in a new landscape um, and that we're going to have to have something to say about it. And my hope for the book is that it helps explain what that is and then offers, look, if, if you think this is the right explanation, then then these are the kinds of things we should say. Yeah, I mean, um, and again, uh, the, the the sort of the soft case for your book, I'm very very sympathetic to. I I withhold my right to be very skeptical about the cult of expertise. You know, I had Raihan Salam on here recently, and he did not blanch or resist overly when I called him a um, right wing Bismarckian, and it makes me v very nervous. I mean, I, I think your point about we're already making a lot of these decisions anyway, so we might as well make them better. Is totally legit and fair. But I still have much more of a libertarian in me in the sense that there are a lot of decisions I would rather the federal government not be making at all. Mm -hmm. And we'd probably agree on some and disagree on others, but we're not going to go there. I, on the coalition point, I think you're probably right. You know, one of the problems that we have right now is that a huge number of people who are, and I talk about this all the time on here, a huge number of people describe themselves as Democrats just because they hate Republicans. And a huge number of Republicans describe themselves as Democrats because they, I mean, Republicans describe themselves as Republicans because they hate Democrats. And you could see if one party dies, the other party loses its reason to live. And that creates all sorts of new interesting coalitions. I worry about some of those coalitions because, you know, by chasing out bourgeois married college-educated Republicans from the suburbs to the Democratic Party, that is a real problem for the GOP long-term, and it's a real problem for um, a lot of the policy approaches that I would like. If, if, if you have the suburbs go to the party that is proposing a Green New Deal and 70% marginal tax rates, all because they don't like the guy in the Oval Office and the way he talks, that's not a big win, even if it makes the coalition shifts really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and this is a point that Ramesh has made for years, is that the point of the conservative movement, which got lost, I, I would argue, this is not his point, but the, uh, the point of the conservative movement wasn't to make the GOP more right-wing. The point of the conservative movement was to move the center of gravity in American life to the right. And instead, what has happened is that while we've made the Republican Party more right-wing, we've also made the Democratic Party more left-wing. And it would be, and the problem with that is that, at least historically, and Trump is a complicated example, but historically, the center of gravity, the, the center is where politics is won. And if, if the GOP moves too far to the right, that opens up the center for the Democrats to take it, which actually means that politics actually gets pulled in the leftward direction. 
and um, how conservatives can get the Democratic Party to be more conservative is a very complicated issue. <laughs> but um, the only way I think we solve all these problems is if you can figure out how to get that kind of consensus going around the center. Even though I'm not a centrist myself, I want the center to be more healthy than it is. <laughs> and maybe, you know, maybe your book will help in that regard, which would be great. Anyway, I want to thank you very much for coming on. Um, we'll have you back to talk about various and sundry things another time. And uh, uh, thanks a bunch. This was great. Thank you. Sure. All right. So Orrin Cass has left the building. I'm here with uh, my major domo, uh, Jack Butler. Uh, Jack, what did you think of all that? Uh, I had a hard time thinking about it because I was very nervous with, about this new doohickey we're using today. And I was eyeing it with suspicion the entire time. Because as you know, I'm very skeptical of any technology. I, uh, and I, I did just read Children of Dune, so that's just deepened my skepticism. Yeah, for listeners who don't know what we're talking about, uh, we couldn't get the studio today. so And I bought a new doohickey because I lost the last doohickey on the NR Cruise, the one with the unbelievably historic conversation between me and um, Rob Long, which will be... Ah, that's another, that's an, another episode 11 moment. Yeah, pretty much. You know it's going to show up on the web one day. Um, <laughs> when you get nominated for the Supreme Court. So we don't know if this stuck, so it's, this is kind of a, you know, if a, if a podcast falls in the woods and there's no one there to hear it, did it actually <laughs> happen kind of thing, but we'll see. Um, yeah, I, I really, you know, I read a bunch of the, the controversy about about the book, I think I think you've all within had the right synthesis about this. Is that the wow? There's something you you hear a lot these days. Shocking, I know. <laughs> um, you know the that's why I kept saying the soft version of his book. I'm very sympathetic to because I think at the margins, moving the needle in a certain direction makes a lot of sense. But there are also a lot of people whose judgment I you know trust who read this as a much more extreme argument and I just didn't want to get into the weeds on this because then it's like you know asking Orrin to respond to all these critics and getting into the weeds on the data stuff which I just didn't want to do but it does it does tingle my spider sense you know and I I, I didn't want to because I, I think he would have taken it poorly but and you know producerism which has a you know a deep and rich history uh, going back to the 16th century diggers um, but was the hallmark of Italian fascism. You know, the, the, when Mussolini was the um, editor of one of the, I can't remember the name of the paper, Popolo d'Italia or whatever, he changed the tagline from, uh, like, for the workers of Italy to um, for the producers of Italy. And, um, and I don't think that's what he what 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 I was going to say it's very kind of you to wait until the guest leaves to call him the fascist. Yeah, yeah, no no, I don't think he's a fascist, but there is there is a history oh, of it's very nice of you. But there is a history <laughs> of producerism. That's why I kept trying to get to this crony capitalism and the regulatory capture stuff. There's a history of producerism not actually being good for the workers, but being good for the people who employ the workers. And the fact that it would happen on our own soil rather than on foreign soil doesn't change the fact that there are problems there. But be that as it may, um, I think he makes a lot of good points, and and there's and I think he was sort of treated somewhat unfairly by some of his critics, but we don't need to dwell on that. Yeah, I, I think the by far the most persuasive case the book makes is the education policy reforms. Yeah, because we yeah we have 
the federal government devotes billions of dollars to subsidizing the college lifestyle, basically. And then for people who to whom that doesn't appeal, just like, oh, go ahead, figure it out. Right. But it also has the problem. It's like rent control. It also has the knock-on effect of inflating the price of college. Uh-huh. For people who do want to go to college but can't afford it, I mean, it's 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 an insane system. Yeah, it's it's it's. He makes the case that it's basically people who have succeeded by that path, designing policy on the assumption that that is the only path, while also perhaps subconsciously trying to eliminate other paths. Right. Um, so there's like multiple things going on here. Yeah, I mean, um, I wrote a piece for I think I've talked about it on here before um, for NR years ago about how. The most palpable utopianism in American life um, is basically the effort to turn the experience of elite kids on college campuses into the organizing principle for the whole country. Um, I think it was called Utopia. And, you know. I remember reading that at the time it was published and really enjoying it. Well, thank that you. was before I worked for you. I would have thought you were in grade school or something. But um, uh, the. You know, on college campuses, everyone is supposed to sort of realize their sort of Rousseauian potential and define themselves however they want. They all think they're independent while they're living off of other people. And the only crime that is truly punishable is like being mean to somebody else, right? And it's sort of, that's the, the sort of, that life experience is what you got sort of wafted off of a lot of sort of Obama and Clinton people was that that's what America should look like where every, you know, it's very diverse, but everyone thinks the same way. Anyway, uh, how was your uh, Christmas break? This is the longest we've been apart in quite a while. <laughs> uh, well, your speaking in that way makes me deeply uncomfortable. Makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> it was fine. Uh, as I mentioned, I one of my Christmas gifts was Children of Dune, which I read very quickly uh-huh. because I was bored and didn't feel like devoting my intellectual energy to a completely productive endeavor so I just it was the only one of the only books I had on hand uh-huh. it was just started it on the air on the airplane and uh, then just went from there and so now I've uh, now God Emperor of Dune is next I won't go immediately into that uh, but I'm I'm interested in what will happen God Emperor of Dune was my second favorite of the books the first Dune was my favorite the first one was my favorite and God Emperor was my second favorite um which I should really reread it one of these days. Um, well, I had a lovely time. I was in Utah and Hawaii. And um, among other things I got out of Hawaii was realizing just how unbelievably out of shape I've gotten. <laughs> and uh, so I'm sort of in New Year's resolution mode about fixing some of that. And uh, really don't want to be back, though. You know, one of the problems with sort of semi-unplugging from politics is that when you re-plug in... It's exhausting. Yeah, when I the thing that greeted me when I when I came back to the city was the I thought pointless controversy over Mitt Romney's op-ed. Uh-huh. It's like aghast that someone would write an op-ed. Yeah. It's just such a Washington controversy. Like, oh my gosh, a byline in the Washington Post. Yeah, <laughs> who could have thought of such a thing? So yeah, those these things they they immediately it's like they're waiting for you and they spring upon you once you decide to plug back in. Yeah. No, um, I did respond to Roger Kimball's, I thought, less than satisfactory meditation on uh, our response to my arguments about Donald Trump's character. We can link to that. I'm not in the business of looking to make more enemies 
um, in 2019, and uh, and I've known Roger for a long time, so I tried to keep it as friendly as possible. Is that and one of your New Year's resolutions? Not quite a resolution, but it's something I'm keeping in mind. And uh, a New Year's inclination. New Year's inclination, a tendency. Anyhow, uh, we have nothing much else to report. Uh, I did see while I was gone, and I tried not to let it bother me, that this podcast fell out of the top 200 political podcasts on iTunes, but I attributed that to the fact that we haven't been running anything for a while. Mm-hmm. So it would be great if people could encourage other people to download, listen, review, all of that kind of stuff. I will be damned if if we don't go back ahead of, say, the editors and commentary podcasts and all of those other niche podcasts. We're also looking to do more weird and interesting things. Um, if we if this doohickey ends up working, um, I can also do more podcasts on the road with people um, rather than relying on a studio. And um, other than that, Jack, is there anything else that we need to announce? I don't think so. I can't think of anything. I could make something up. Yeah, I'm sure you could. Um, <laughs> I anyway. decided to overdose on the spice and, and now can see through time. Um, um, uh so anyway, uh, we this may not be the only podcast this week. I don't know. I'm kind of chomping at the bit to to get more under my belt. And um, but until next time, uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for coming back. Uh, we hope to have 2019 be a much more um, exciting and interesting year. And um, I'm sorry if I sound Jeb Bush like in my low energy, but the jet lag from Hawaii is just brutal. Um, what an as an aside, what an insult that was to Jeb because he's in like great shape as compared to what he was in like in two thousand when the Florida recounts happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he was kind like, of pudgy back then. Yeah, I kind of that was my first memory of Jeb, and then he shows up on the political scene in twenty sixteen, and I'm like, oh my gosh, he's he looks great. Good yeah. for you, Jeb. Yeah. But oh well, it's all yeah. it's all like an aura thing, not a physical health thing. Yeah, and low energy. What really low energy meant was not entertaining. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, which is, you know, something I crave. Um, you know. Uh, Good thing this isn't a low-energy podcast. That's right. And I, 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 I probably should not go off on any more tangents. So anyway, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. And I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. How long do we go? Hour 20. Wow. Just what what the market demands.